It's certainly the case that you are not the only person who has the same idea. And if you're, if talking to somebody about what you're doing is going to like let the cat out of the bag to the extent that like you don't have a viable business anymore, right? Like you didn't have a viable business before, you just don't know it. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we sit down with Thomas Dickerson, co-founder and chief science officer at Geopipe, a company that creates immersive digital twins in rich 3D data about real cities right here in Vermont. Welcome. This is Sam Roach-Gerber. And David Bradbury. Recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hello, Thomas. Hi, Sam. How's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well. Thanks for walking all the way over from your desk to the conference room. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a little bit of a haul, but I don't mind. <laughs> did you count the number of steps? Like, I did not. I probably could have carried you, honestly. <laughs> so next time. <laughs> it's, uh, thanks for joining us here. It's really exciting. I can't wait for you to share a little bit about your story um, with us and to Vermont um, on what you're doing, because it's awesome. It is awesome. But I realized after my intro, um, digital twin might sound a little bit creepy. So let's start with a little <laughs> clarity. What's a digital twin? Yeah, so um, digital twin is a term that kind of came out of the real estate space. And basically the idea is that, um, you know, if you're managing a building, um, you want to have uh, kind of a digital replica of that building so that kind of all of the things that you're trying to track, you have some way of representing that in virtual space in a way that's uh, kind of intuitive and, and easy for a lay person to understand and, and visualize. Um, and for us, what that means is not just a single building, but it's, you know, an entire city or, you know, ultimately the entire world. We want to have a, you know, semantic replica of kind of all of the buildings, the trees, the roads, the sidewalks, everything you need to, to kind of have it be recognizable as the real world. And with the information associated with that, that you need to um, build interactive experiences on top of. So that's not creepy at all. It's actually very, very cool. And that's quite a relief. Um, <laughs> and so you talked a little bit about this in the beginning when you said real estate. Mm -hmm. um, who uses these? Yeah, so um, our kind of early adopters were in what I would call, you know, architecture, engineering, and construction, you know, a little bit adjacent to, to real estate. Um, more recently, we've been really focused on the, what I'll call the game tech market. And so this is people building experiences on top of game engine technology. Um, and that's not necessarily sort of the traditional entertaining games that you might be thinking of, right? You know, although obviously... Um, you know, anyone who's played like Grand Theft Auto has probably thought about like what it would be if it was like actually their hometown. Um, but uh, the sort of distinguishing feature of game engine technology is a lot of powerful real-time rendering technology and physics simulation ability to build interactive virtual experiences that don't have to be entertaining, right? So this could be training simulations for personnel, right? You know, if you're a firefighter and you want to learn the existing neighborhood without tying up real world resources that would then kind of be out of commission if an actual emergency happened. Um, you know, if you want to train police officers to have really kind of consistent responses in stressful environments so that they don't, uh, you know, do things kind of that are supposed to be outside of their training. Um, if you want to train, you know, truck drivers, uh, train drivers, um, 
or even you know autonomous vehicles as well. Um, you know, these are all sort of things that can happen on top of a game engine. Wow, and making them way more realistic than anything <laughs> that exists. Right, exactly. You know, Ten yeah. years ago. Yeah. You got that now, Sam? I easy peasy. I get it. I get it. Um, let's get back to the roots here. You grew up yeah. in Addison County. Yep. Right. Um, is entrepreneurship is that was that always in the family, or how did you end up starting a business? Yeah. So you know, uh, my grandfather actually, you know, was doing a tech startup. You know, like decades ago, way before. Um, that was even what anyone called a tech startup. Um, he started a company that um, built uh, educational computers um, based on designs uh, by Claude Shannon, who's a fairly famous uh, computer scientist at MIT. Um, he eventually sold that company to Radio Shack and then went into managing independent bookstores. Um, neither of my parents are entrepreneurs at all. Um, my dad's a professor at Middlebury. Um, my mom, uh, you know, basically, you know, uh, stayed at home, took care of my siblings and I, and, you know, did a lot of volunteering in the community. Um, so, you know, the, the, there wasn't entrepreneurship kind of in the nuclear family, but the extended family, there was definitely a, a tradition there. And what, what gets you excited about an entrepreneur? It's not for everybody to start a company. Like, God, you're ballsy. Like, why? I, I think a lot of it for me has to do with um, having intellectual freedom to pursue things that I think are interesting problems. Um, you know, I, I did a computer science PhD, and and the stereotypical route for you know PhD uh, graduates is to go out and and you know get professorships, um, and. I've spent enough time in and around academia that I knew, you know, full-time teaching wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um, and research in sort of the academic environment um, where the incentives are much more around um, making sure that you're publishing on a certain cadence to get tenure, um, I, I think doesn't incentivize working on on the sorts of hard problems that I find really interesting. It, um incentivize working on problems that you think you can get a result in a certain time frame and pitch in a way and get into the right venue. Um, and I was much more interested in, in solving hard problems that would be usable by people in the real world. Um, and so the, the deep tech venture space, um, you know, has a tradition of, of backing people doing hard research that um, is going to translate into something that people are going to use down the road, but being respectful of the timeline that like, you know, maybe this is not a, you know, you're, you're not necessarily getting something every six months at the beginning. You know, there, there's a pretty long lead up time um, to product. Would you still get your PhD had you known you were going to start Geopipe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I actually started Geopipe um, halfway through my PhD um, you know, Christopher, my co-founder, had just wrapped up his PhD and was doing a postdoc at NYU at the time. Um, and I think the the skill set that you get from being a P doing a PhD is learning how to become an expert in a field um, much more usefully than like any of the individual like bits of knowledge that you learn while you know whatever field you may become an expert in in the process of doing your PhD. 
the meta skill set of how do I become an expert in this in, in a field um, is really useful for for you know starting a business. I'm so glad to hear that because that sounds like a lot of work. Of if, if you had regretted it, <laughs> yeah. no, no. We've had a few, we've had a few lawyers in here, or yeah. former lawyers, and are now like uh, running like Maple was one, right? Wait, you're Maple yeah. Sugar. Well, what about the law degree? He's like, well, I still use it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's uh, a lot of pressure actually when you're starting a company if you're still you know in educate you know in your educational process in some capacity to you know maybe consider leaving or taking a leave of absence um, and then coming back to it later um, and I was pretty confident in my ability to juggle both geopipe and you know doing a PhD at the same time and I, I think that panned out. Good. Yeah, it must have also felt so much easier when you were done with your PhD. Yeah. No, it was, you know, I, I j- joke with, uh, uh, you know, academic Twitter, There, you hear a lot of horror stories about people talking about, like, oh, how, you know, how rough, like, grad school can be. And I always tell people, like, you know, the first two years of, or first two and a half years of grad school, when I wasn't doing geopipe, were in a lot of ways kind of the, the most relaxing <laughs> time period <laughs> of my life. It's all relative. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it really is. It's all, all relative. Yeah. Um, and you did mention briefly your co-founder. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how that partnership came to fruition and um, how that has been important for Geopipe? Yeah, so, so there's actually kind of a, a long backstory there. Um, so Christopher and I met on the internet in high school um, through a online community for people programming graphing calculators uh, to make like games on your like TI-83+. Plus. Uh, this is obviously you kind of You can't make that up. Course, That's too of perfect. Of yeah, we yeah. hear that all the time. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously this is kind of a, a niche hobby. There weren't too many kids in rural Addison County uh, making calculator games, much less trying to like get calculators on the internet uh, or um, using them to like solve cryptography problems. Or, or had a 2400 baud modem or whatever you were dialing up on at the time. Right. Um, and, you know, Christopher was growing up in, in Manhattan where, you know, obviously there is a kind of much more thriving set of diverse hobbies that, that are, you know, maybe accepted, but it's, it's still a pretty niche hobby. Um, and so, you know, we worked together on a lot of projects, um, both in the calculator space, hobby game development, kind of anything that, that struck our fancy um, ran a community for for teaching uh, kids uh, programming skills using graphing calculators as a platform, um, and then you know in in college when we were sort of at that age where meeting someone random off the internet wasn't weird <laughs> anymore, um, you know we we became real life friends, uh, and about four or five years later started GeoPipe. So you were building games on graphing calculators. Simultaneously, I was learning how to type boobless into a regular calculator. <laughs> nice. Let's just put everything into context here. Nice. So, <laughs> so you started Geopipe. Like, what's the secret sauce in a nutshell for, for Geopipe? Yeah, so I, I think the, the secret sauce is in some ways um, the philosophy that we're using to approach um, the problem um, you know, it, putting the real world into virtual space, right? There's a lot of computer vision that you have to do to look at the raw, you know, imagery, the raw sensor data, and figure out what's actually here. Um, but the approaches that we're using 
um, the kind of philosophical influences of how we're structuring the problem are, are fairly different from what you would see in sort of the typical computer vision uh, literature and research community. Uh, and the kind of diversity of intellectual backgrounds on our team, um, I think, really contributes to having a novel approach to solving the problem. So it's not all just computer scientists on your team? Uh it is not all computer scientists. Um, it is very largely computer scientists, but even within computer science, right, there's a lot of different subfields. And so, you know, we've got people coming from, you know, computational geometry backgrounds, robotics backgrounds, um, actual computer vision backgrounds, computational geometry. I think I already said that uh, high performance computing, um, scientific computing, all, kind of all these different backgrounds that together give a much more holistic view of how to solve problems from a computational lens um, than, you know, just one person who did, you know, research in one subject area. And the philosopher yeah, as well, right? Yeah. So um, your team was here at VSET uh, working this last week and, and getting together. And at one point, Sam was like, wow, I bet that's the highest cumulative IQ we've had in that room in a while. So <laughs> I hope you got some good stuff out of that. Um, I mean, Dave, you and I had lunch in there the other day, so I don't know what you're talking true. about. That's, that's totally. You know what? You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so, you know, I tell people, you know, one of the reasons when we were looking at making a small investment here this past summer uh, was they do stuff at scale, at speed, um, and at an attribute level that leads to cost and, and, and sort of um, this, this vibrancy of model that no one else is really doing. Yeah. Did, did I lie? Is that is that true? Yeah, that okay. that's, that about sums it up. All right, awesome. Yeah. Um, what is the metaverse, and why should we care? And are you in it? That's a great question. Yeah, great so, question. So um, the slightly uh, extended backstory here um, is there's a novel um, called Snow Crash um, by a kind of cyberpunk science fiction author um, named Neil Stevenson. Um, this was a super popular novel in the 90s, um, and it coined the term metaverse. Um, and in the context of this novel, the metaverse was kind of this online VR experience. Um, there was kind of like this alternate version of the world um, where people were kind of, regardless of what, how, how they were living in the real world, could, you know, connect to the metaverse and like have this online persona that had its whole own, you know, life and, and you know, own set of rules that it was falling within the metaverse. Like Sims. Yeah, or, or Second Life, <laughs> okay. right? Um, th these were, I think, actually fairly heavily influenced by, you know, the idea of the metaverse. Um, but kind of within mainstream pop culture, um, it was actually The Matrix was kind of the, the uh, semi-dystopian um, cyberpunk uh, franchise that, that really took off and like captured kind of our, our cultural imagination. Um, but kind of the older generation of, of like hackers and, and kind of VR enthusiasts and internet enthusiasts were, I think we're still like very taken by this idea of the metaverse, which was much more like decentralized, um, collaborative, um, and, uh, allowing people to unlock their imaginations rather than, you know, just like locking them into, you know, like a construct. A, right. Exactly. Um, and I think what people mean when they say the metaverse now, particularly in like the last 
you know, like four or five months, it's kind of unclear, it's kind of nebulous, right? There, there's kind of this aspirational idea of this online, like all-encompassing virtual space where you can you know, do anything, be anyone, um, and have kind of interesting interactions. But I don't think it's really defined yet what specific people mean when they say we're building, you know, part of the metaverse. What- so when, when when Zuckerberg at Facebook says we're meta, right? That's right. one thing. Or when IBM says we're committing to the metaverse or when everybody's got a, a version, yeah. it, it seems like it's like the cool thing you want. Yeah. To uh, be. So so I think certainly think, you know, having a digital copy of the real world in a space that you can build you know, interactive experiences on top of is an important component to sort of the metaverse of the future. Um, we generally try to avoid using kind of hazy, ill-defined buzzwords because nobody really knows what you're what you're talking about. Yeah, but, but Sam and I live yeah. on those buzzwords just so <laughs> we can fake it till we make it. Yeah, so yeah, you know, if if someone tells us that we're a metaverse company and we're happy to say, yeah, yeah, that that that's totally true. And if someone says, no, I don't think you're a metaverse company, we're like. Oh, all right. Fun all by right. Us. Yeah. <laughs> huh. That's good to know. You know, I I think I'll try to throw it around a little bit less casually now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I thought same. I was rolling with the current stuff. This is the same thing not. with, you know, um, you know, when we started Geopipe, everyone was really big on on VR. And I, I think yeah. most of what people mean by the metaverse now is some like weird combination of like blockchain and VR, and I don't really know what that means. But even, you know, five years ago, people would say, are you a VR company? We'd say, no, we're not a VR company. We make 3D content, which you can put in VR, and it's really cool in VR, but you can just as easily send it to a 3D printer or, you know, do like traditional like 2D renderings that you throw up on a computer screen or like make a movie from it or, or put it in a video game engine on a flat screen. It's and like asking a marketing company if they're an Instagram company. Right. Yeah, exactly. You all, I don't, I haven't seen a VR headset anywhere near your stuff. So is that not relevant to where you're at today or where you think your customers want to be? Yeah, certainly. I, th- I think a lot of our customers are interested in, in VR experiences. Um, but we haven't really found the need to to build those VR experiences for ourselves, right? Like we we provide the way that we describe this as we're the missing link between data acquisition and data presentation. So you know, data acquisition is the people going out driving cars with cameras on top, flying drones, you know, launching satellite imagery, right? right? Exactly, kind of any of these sensor platforms. Um, and you know, the data presentation people are you know the the uh, video game engines, the VR headsets, the you know 3D printing maker spaces, whatever you have it. And what's missing is a way to get that raw sensor data into a useful form for the presentation. And that's where we kind of slot in. Cool. Hmm. I told someone the other day, I said, they do a fucking awesome graphic package on Main Street. <laughs> like, and, and they looked at me like I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I think I've confirmed that. But No worries. That's why we have Thomas yeah. in the house. Um, so... Your company, you just mentioned to me like the other day when your company was all at Visa, it was the first time everyone was together, yeah. which is, I think we're hearing that more and more these days. Um, you all are primarily based in Vermont and then New York. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about how that has been and how you all are making it work? Yeah. So so I think a lot of people, their first experience with sort of remote work or like hybrid work was with the pandemic. 
Um, and I think GeoPipe actually had a little bit of an advantage there because we've been a distributed team since our beginning. Um, I was based in Providence, you know, finishing up grad school at Brown. Christopher was in, in New York. Um, and the first couple of years, you know, I spent a lot of time on the train going back and forth to New York, but also, you know, working from home in, in Providence, um, supervising interns, you know, at our, at our, you know, Providence location, um, simultaneously with having interns in New York. Uh, and, you know, we had to do a lot of, uh, Google Hangouts. Um, we were really excited when Zoom came out because, um, a lot of co-working spaces don't have reliable internet. Um, and so being able to, uh, dial in with like a phone number and like have reliable audio was like a godsend when you're working in, in New York City, especially where like, every, you know, there's like 2000 Wi-Fi networks that show up and they're all competing with each other. And so even if you're theoretically have a good Internet connection, right, like at your, the, your, at laptop, the your laptop's never going to get a signal back to your router. And so it was just like miserable trying to use kind of these traditional um, video conferencing platforms in that environment. And so we were really excited when Zoom came out. You know, we, we started playing around with Zoom. Um, and then, like, the pandemic hit, and everyone was like, Zoom, 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 Zoom. I was like, uh, you know, we've been already been living this life for, like, three years at, at that point. Yeah. Um, That's so crazy. Yeah. And I, I literally, like, I just had a flashback to, I mean, when you moved back to Vermont, right, and and you reached out um, when we had our space down in Middlebury, and we're like, hey, like, I'm Thomas, my company's Geopipe, like, looking for space, and yeah. I like, look, remember looking it up and being like, oh my, holy shit! <laughs> I think I sent it to Dave and was like, this guy wants to work out a visa. We're like, hell yes! It's like, I hope he doesn't break the internet. Yeah, <laughs> what he was doing. So yeah, so it's it's really cool to see you know how your team has grown since then. And I remember you telling me like we're hiring rapidly. That must have been I don't know three years ago or so. Yeah, and you know, so I think when we moved in and you know, visa at mid in summer 2019, the team was like four full timers. It was like you, David, Christopher. Yeah. And, and I think uh, Bryant was our kind of our original engineer who then left for grad school. Um, and we are now at 10 full timers with another person joining in January. Um, and, you know, like three more open positions that we're hiring for. So the the scale of the team has really grown rapidly in the last you know, actually, even this year, we, we went from, I think, five at the beginning of the year to 10 at the end of the year. So crazy. That's pretty awesome. Um, any secrets in finding people that you've discovered? How are you finding? Because you're pretty specific of what you want, right? Yeah. So, so this is hiring has probably been the single hardest part, far, far more than than like the research problems. You know, we we are pretty confident in our in our technical roadmap. And um, what we've really been missing on is just like human power to execute on it. Um, and you know, part of that is that you know we're building, uh, we're we're solving problems that are pretty mathematically sophisticated. So there's a certain like base level of math knowledge that we need that you know you don't necessarily expect from like everyone coming out of a computer science program. Um, and then the other thing is this is a really hot job market right now. And so, you know, we're competing with, you know, all of the uh, uh, formerly FANG companies, I guess, uh, you know. Facebook and Facebooking, Amazon. Well, Facebook and, yeah, face, you know, it was Facebook, Apple, Apple Amazon, Netflix, Netflix right. Google. And, and now it's more like uh, man because, you know, Google turned into Alphabet and 
uh, Facebook turned into Meta. Uh, but you know, it's it's it's, it's uh, some somebody made that joke on on Twitter that it's now you know Fang is now man. And I was like, <laughs> you know, it's like oh, no. that's uncanny, kind <laughs> that's of uncanny. Perfect. Yeah, um, but but no, you know, there's um, it, it's hard to compete with uh, you know that scale of company on sort of the financial resources that you have at your disposal as a company at, at our stage. And so finding people who've been really motivated by solving hard problems and by our specific problem um, has been really important. I'm sure us. it's like, you know, your world is probably pretty small when it comes to people at that level with that interest. And so you can right. kind of know who they are by right. name, I'm sure. You, right. you go find the calculator builder channel. And uh, and now, and now Actually, you have these fancy new hoodies that you broke <laughs> yeah. out this week. So that's going to help a ton. You know, it's, it's actually funny you mentioned the, the calculator programming channel. We've we have started having people who learned programming on our calculator community website applying for jobs at GeoPipe. That's um, really cool. Which is it's it's pretty funny seeing yes. that come like full circle. Very heartwarming. Yeah. Also, I am super flattered, but I think my math experience is just like a little bit too high. I'd be a little overqualified, so I'm gonna have to say right. no, but I appreciate it. Good side hustle, Sam. That's what you. You mentioned financing the company yeah. along. Like, how did you and Christopher do it um, through the years? I mean, you've you've used the. I mean, I'll let you explain, but. Yeah. So so pretty early on, we um, went through a couple incubator programs, uh, which you know we brought, pulled in about sixty thousand in funding between um, the NYU Summer Launchpad program. Uh, New York City Media Labs Combine Accelerator, uh, which is kind of more structured like an incubator. Um, and then we also, you know, we took a small convertible note from Rough Draft Ventures, you know, uh, spinning the, uh, you know, Thomas as a student uh, thing pretty hard. You know, a lot of these, you know, student-backed venture funds are really looking at undergrads. Um, but, you know, as a grad student, I'm still like, hey, no, I'm like, I, I'm a student. Look, uh, I have homework, I yeah, swear. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And then we won the uh, 100K uh, tech category first prize at, uh, at Stern Business School's 300K uh, challenge, which is basically like a year-long pitch competition. Um, so that you know, was a huge chunk of liquidity at that right. stage, you know, no strings attached. At the same time, we also brought in a National Science Foundation SBIR phase one grant for, uh, you know, 225,000 um, brought in. And then we also got into Techstars, which was like another 20,000. We actually turned down the Techstars star power note because we had just gotten 100,000 with no strings attached. We were like, we don't need 100,000. That's going to like show up on our cap. Right. So, so you, the, it's 26% is the, is the like 20K, um, which is, you know, pretty steep, but, but the, um, the value, real, the real value is the, is the Techstars network, not the not the cash. And then the star power note is basically like a safe Got style thing that that down the road, um, you know, will show up on your cap table when you raise you know uh, equity. Um, we did uh, a safe kind of pre-seed round um, like a year and a half later. We were definitely the earliest stage company in our Techstars cohort, so we we weren't really well positioned to use the you know demo day platform to, to launch a, a round. Um, but, you know, about a year after that, we started raising. Um, we did the Genius New York 
yeah, competition yeah. um, that brought in a million dollars. Um, you know, also kind of got a, a little uh, seed of a team up in, in Syracuse. Um, got our SBI, our phase two, and then um, just finished raising kind of a formal seed round uh, led by uh, Village Global. Um, obviously, you know, uh, VSET uh, participated in that round. Um, and, and some other notables that you yeah, announced, yeah, right? I mean, these yeah. are the folks who wrote the first checks to Oculus, Control Lab, right? Few yeah, others. yeah. So, so we, um, you know, got a couple of big institutionals. You know, besides Village Global, we had you know Alexa Fund, um, Matrix Partners, um, Ame Cloud, which is you know some ex Yahoo guys, um, and then we also had a lot of people within sort of the Control Labs. Uh, ecosystem uh, invest personally. Um, so, you know, our, our new COO, or I say new, he's been with us almost a year now. Um, ben Jones was previously the COO at, at Control Labs. Um, and so that that network was really useful for us as well. Yeah. Pretty, uh, so it seemed like it just happened overnight and was pretty easy. <laughs> I, that's my takeaway. So um, what didn't you use? What program didn't you access that you tried to? Like Y Combinator? No, or... we, we didn't apply to YC. Um, we did apply, so we um, we actually turned down ERA because we got into them at the same time as Techstars. There was a couple other um, accelerators that we had applied to as sort of backup options. Um, ERA was, was, was definitely on a similar tier as, as Techstars at that point in terms of brand value, but we realized it was kind of structured the opposite way from what we needed. So, you know, Techstars was really good at giving technical founders kind of the backing on the business side. And our impression from from going through the, you know, interviewing process with ERA was that they were much more focused on giving kind of business-oriented founders backing on the technical side. Um, so that, that was part of our decision there. Um, you know, honestly, our, our pre-seed was, was a slog. Uh, it was, that was, it was a lot of it, friends and family. And it was a, a lot of friends a, and family. Long time safe. Um, th- there was a yeah. lot of. There's a lot of like also just like weird accidents, where where people who were like would like commit and be like I'm writing you like three hundred thousand dollar check tomorrow and then like three days later they'd email me like uh, my mom has cancer and like I can't participate right now, and this ha- this happened like variations on this of just like weird flukes where like would have closed the round and then like they had to drop out stop stop it, 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 it yeah. happened like five times wow. um it takes some resilience and and look in the mirror you know honestly like the first time like something happens something like that happens you're like are, are you just blowing me off but like these were people who you know we we take pride in kind of trying to build a relationship with our investors, you know, from from an early point, so that when we come asking for money, right, like they've known us, they've seen what we've been doing. It's it's not like you know, who are you? Why are you here asking for money? And so you know, we we knew these were like people who were they weren't just blowing us off. They like legitimately had like things going on in their lives where it was like this is outside their control. Like can't participate at this time. But it, it was it was hard being on like, on the other end of of the oh, table. That, yeah, it's a lot of years. That's, I think you made such a good point there, like building the relationship and yeah. building the trust. Like you guys have some killer, killer investors now, really, really big time. And um, can you talk a little bit about like how you approach those folks in the beginning and how you sort of build the trust to to get them to eventually write a check? 
Yeah, so you know, a lot of the bigger investors look at accelerator programs for like intros of like who to watch. And and the you know, the investors basically all want to have data on like what your company is doing before they write a check. And so the easiest way to do that is just like, you know, every like six months, like like a get on your on your distribution list so they get updates and if you're being diligent about like actually sending out updates about like this is what we're doing you're not just like in stealth mode um you know that's really helpful you know you can put asks in those updates being like hey like this is what we're doing right now this is what we need anybody can anybody help and and that actually gives an opportunity for you to vet the investors too right because you know a lot of the a lot of the value out of the investors is not just the check it's like what else they bring to the table and so if they're able to kind of informally help out when you have requests of like, hey, yeah, there's someone like in my LinkedIn network, happy to make a connection, stuff like that. Um, and, and so it's a two-way street, right, where you're like giving them insight into like how the company is developing. Um, you know, obviously like the intro usually needs to come, it, it's kind of got to be a warm intro most of the time to be taken seriously. Um, sometimes you get lucky with with cold emailing if it's, you know, a perfect fit, but most of the time you want a warm intro. Um but it's a two-way street because you you get the feedback of like how is how is this person going to be for us like what what do they bring to the table for us? Right. And I think too like that's such a good point to to show your progress and ask for yeah. help because I know you know at Visa we're always looking for coachability right mm-hmm. people that are willing to take criticism or. Um, to, you know, show the progress that they've made. And I think the instinct is kind of stealth mode, right? Like, oh, we need to have this perfect before we release it to the world. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. You want to see what they've been doing. So some of the best advice we got early on was don't be cagey about what you're doing. Um, That it's certainly the case that you are not the only person who has the same idea. Yeah. And if you're if talking to somebody about what you're doing is going to like let the cat out of the bag to the extent that like you don't have a viable business anymore, right? Like you didn't have a viable business before you just don't know it. So Uh, true. It's yeah. I mean, that's, so we get folks all the time. They're like, Hey, can you know, I'd love some advice. Can you sign the NDA? And we don't sign NDAs. We just say, don't tell us anything you don't want to tell us because yeah, exactly. we can give you plenty of advice without that. And most people are like, Oh, okay, great. But every once in a while, someone's like, no, I can't. I well, to your point, we want to talk about the markets or your customer insights or the team strength that you have versus the, you know, the schematic, right. Or the right. Like protein sequence or whatever you're right. doing. Like nobody needs to browse my source code, but like, <laughs> If you're not browsing my source code, there's not a whole lot that I can tell you that's going to like put us at a competitive disadvantage. Um, make that a T-shirt. <laughs> Nobody should browse my <laughs> source code like that. That's a winner right there. Um, all right, I'm going to go back to this sort of precede yeah. stage because yeah. it does come up time and time again. You know, we met with 389 company founders like you last year, mm-hmm. which was a big increase. Um, because you were trying to describe something you haven't yet built mm-hmm. in a world that was sort of threatening to come, um, is it easier to raise on promise of what you're going to build and do or performance of what what little kernels of 
data or customer feedback you have? Promise I, or performance? I think there's a huge cultural gap there between East and West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, coming into this, thing, like we're, we're doing a tech startup, all you hear are like the stories of like uh, Silicon Valley companies that like literally have nothing but a pitch deck and like someone and like, you know, like two smart people pitching someone who's been in that situation before and walking away with like $200 million cash, like no questions asked. And, uh, you know, you, you constantly hear as a pre-seed company, right? Like, uh, you know, early stage investors are investing in the team. They're not investing in like the widget in, in, in the, in the like traction metrics, yeah, right? Traction. Like, like the, the, the team, you know, what, what they want to know is like, can I trust like that these team members are capable of doing what they say they're going to do? And if I believe in that, right, then it's like, okay, here's money. If you don't believe in it, like uh, walk away. But coming into this from sort of the New York ecosystem, it's a lot of like very traditional like Wall Street, um, like show me your uh, you know, month over month revenue increases. Cash like, flow models. Like, sh- show, yeah, show me like your, your like, you know, 36 month business plan, like all of this stuff that's like, it's, this isn't relevant. Um, and so there's a, there's a pretty substantial cultural like mismatch for us between sort of the like, particularly coming in as a deep tech company where it's like, we're not trying to get traction in the way that you want us to measure traction uh, for probably another year. Uh, but we're well past the point of like, we've got enough proof of concept that like this should be like an slam dunk uh, for, um, you know, like a, pre- a, a pre-seed investment. Yeah, I would say you're right. Although lightning does strike. I mean, I hear that day in the hallway at, right. at VSET, I was like, oh, here's Corky and Kevin Ellis. Meet this yeah, guy. And yeah. You guys would chatter for 20 minutes. He yeah. walks out. He's like, he's like Zuckerberg, but nice. We're in. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, that's awesome. Um, and that's, he's from Maine. So that's as uh, far east as you can get here. So um, really, really, really yeah. cool. And I think really important yeah. to share for others that are in the trenches, um, particularly yeah. working on tougher tech. You, right. you have to find the investors who match. You have to match the investors to like your story, right? Like, like the invest, you know, investors are not interchangeable is, is I think the takeaway here, right? Like you have to find somebody who's investing in companies that have the same trajectory and like founders that have the same trajectory as what you're doing. And that takes, you know, research and like digging around and like, you know, kind of pushing through your social networks to find. Yeah. And I think we, you know, we try to remind entrepreneurs all the time, like, investors are on your team as soon as you take that check they're on your team Mm -hmm. and you know you have to think about them just like you're hiring someone on your team right yeah yeah dave it's time unfortunately uh, we could talk about this i feel like i just blinked and that um i think we're doing pretty decently sam for our first one back here thomas hasn't left he's awake (laughs) he's awake he's here informative yeah Okay, so this is magic wand time where you have superpowers. And, and actually, given what you do, you probably think you already do have superpowers. So let's, let's accept that. Um, if you could change one thing in Vermont, 
what would you change? So the easy answer here is that on the food scene, we need like way more restaurants that aren't just like bougie new American, not to like diss on bougie new American, but it's like every single restaurant in a 30 mile radius. Uh, and after, you know, spending six years in, in Rhode Island and a lot of near Johnson and Wales, uh, which has a great, you know, yeah. culinary program and a great food scene and, you know, traveling down to New York all the time and moving back here. And it's like, my options are off like $15 hamburgers. <laughs> It wears a little thin. It's not that it's a bad hamburger. It's just that sometimes you want something other than the $15 hamburger. Um, They're all farm raised. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the, the the more serious answer, you know, is, is there's a lot of uh, academic um, talent here. You know, we've got Middlebury. We've got St. Mike's. We've got UVM. We've got Norwich. We're not that far from Dartmouth. Uh but very few people stick around. I think there's kind of the perception that there aren't tech jobs here, um, which maybe historically has been true. Um, but it, but you know, certainly Burlington doesn't have like the cultural cachet of of you know Silicon Valley or or, or you know even you know New York or Boston. Um, and so figuring out how to pitch to you know talented undergrads, right? That like. You can stay here, you can build a career here, and you can solve hard problems here uh, is something that I think we need to work on. Um, you know, we also, you know, we don't have the, like the the sort of senior engineering talent either, um, and that that's much harder to build, right? Like that takes the time of first convincing all the, you know, seniors graduating this year to stick around for 15 years so that, you know, the, the companies coming down the road will will have them on tap. You know, Sam, if only there were a digital twin of our cities that would show the businesses that are here and a student could just visit and see what was going on, that would be a pretty cool use of, of Geopipe. See, I think you just bring in the good food and then the second problem gets solved, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Thomas, thank you so much for, for taking time with us today and, and talking about your journey. It really is helpful and inspiring. And um, I mean, the bad news is however many years you're in, you're, you're kind of just getting started yeah. at this next phase. And it's really exciting. So we'll have you back when you've got the next iteration of, of Lessons Learned. This has been Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs this series is supported by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. If you like what you're hearing, share us, follow us, tell a friend. Let's get back to work.